Hello. Good morning. My name is David. Now, before I begin, I want you to turn to the person next to you and I spend the next 30 seconds sharing with them the most dangerous situation you've ever been in. Go. Okay, what have we got? Who wants, to, who wants to share, perhaps, or the person next to them, the most dangerous situation they've ever been in? Any takers? Any takers? Yeah, Whitey, go on. You can say it was yours, Whitey. Yeah, yeah. That's very dangerous. As refugee, fleeing for your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone else? What other dangerous situations have we been in? Allie? Oh, flat on instead of with an edge. Ouch. Ouchies. I think my most dangerous situation, and I've been in plenty, right? Edwina thanks God that I'm still alive. Uh, probably the most dangerous one was involved being on the back of a motorbike. And uh, this motorbike was maybe doing 60, 70, 80 k's an hour. No, it wasn't, it wasn't super fast. Uh, I was maybe 13, 14-ish at the time. Now, as a start of the story, that doesn't sound particularly dangerous. And you're going to have to wait till the end of the sermon for me to tell you the rest of that story, unfortunately. But you, you'll be right. You'll hold. Let me tell you instead about Aaron Ralston. Anyone know who Aaron Ralston is? No. Now, when I start telling you the story, you will know. Aaron, in 2003, decided to go hiking in the Grand Canyon. Oh, yeah, there we go. People are like, oh, yeah, I know where this is going. And off Aaron went. He went for a hike and he was descending a ravine quite a steep one, when a boulder that he had loosened fell and trapped his arm. He was stuck, well and truly stuck. He tried very hard to remove his arm and he couldn't. For three days he was stuck like this. See, Aaron had made one of the basic mistakes of hiking. He hadn't told anyone that he was going or where he was going. So there was no hope that a rescue was looking for him. He was trapped. What do you do? Now, it's an extreme danger like that, that life focuses down. Our decision priorities become all about that moment. We focus specifically on the danger at hand and we are prepared to make decisions that otherwise might seem impossible. Aaron decided that the only way to get free was to amputate his own arm. So for three days he'd been trapped there 
All he had was 375 ml of water, which is about half this amount. It's one of those kind of, a tin, a can, right? That's about how much water he had. And for some reason, two burritos. I don't know why you take burritos hiking, but there you go. 375 ml of water and two burritos over the three days that wore out. And he thought, I have to do something. The only tool that he had was one of those multi-tool kind of a Leatherman sort of thing, although it wasn't a brand name one. This was just a dull blade and no real tools. The problem was he couldn't think of a way to cut through the bone. So he only had a blade that wasn't going to do the job. You know, as he was hallucinating, he had an epiphany. He realized what he could do was use the leverage of his body weight against the rock to break his arm. So he spent a while trying out some, uh, some, some tourniquets till he finally worked out one that he thought could work, kind of with, with his belt. And he went for it. He snapped his arm and spent an hour cutting through. Now, having removed his hand, it didn't end there, because he was still stuck halfway up a cliff. So he had to rappel down this cliff with only one arm, which he somehow managed, and then stumble his way back towards his car. Halfway there, a family found him, called for help. Six hours after he removed his hand, Aaron was saved. He'd lost a third of his blood, the, uh, the officials went to recover his hand for him. For some reason, I don't know why he wanted it back. It took 13 men to remove the boulder that had trapped him. Moments of extreme danger focus us like nothing else. We will remove our arm if it means remaining alive. Well, maybe, maybe not if you were in that situation. Everything just becomes about that next moment. What do I do next to stay alive? Now, throughout this uh, last couple of weeks as we've been looking at Noah, we have heard that each one of us faces our own boulder, so to speak. Each one of us faces a danger that is so great that our very lives are at stake. For as God judged the world in the time of Noah, so God will judge it again. Our decisions, our lives, everything about us must be focused on that. For it is the greatest danger we have ever faced. And as we have heard from chapter 3 onwards, what it focuses us on is a man. We are looking for this person, this mysterious serpent crusher we heard in Genesis 3.15, who will somehow save us. For the judgment to come is one that on our own we won't be able to face. It is one which we need a saviour. And now, so if you remember, we, are, we went to Cain and Abel. Well, Adam and Eve had two kids, Cain and Abel, and neither of them was going to be the rescuer. And they had another son, Seth, and all he did was have more kids. And we traced down through this family line till we arrived at this guy, Lamech, who made a prophecy about his son, Noah. And Lamech said, this one, he will rescue us from the toil. He will, uh, he will comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands. And so we've been searching over the last couple of weeks, is Noah the one who saves us? Is he the man that we should be trusting in? Should this be the church of Noah? We saw in the first week that God destroyed the world and he will do so again. He will bring the wicked to account. We saw that God rescued his people in the second week as he saved Noah, this righteous man. And so today we come to that question, is Noah the serpent crusher? Is Noah the one who saves? 
Now we're going to pick the story up again in Genesis 8, uh, 18. So if, you, if you're still in Matthew, you might want to flick back to Genesis 8. Uh, I'm going to read through that story again. And we pick up the story, if you like, in a new Eden, a new Garden of Eden. The world has been washed clean. It is all sparkly and new. And Noah, he starts well. His first concern as they come off the boat is to thank the God who saved him. Chapter 8 and verse 18. Noah came out together with his sons, his wives, and his sons' wives. All the animals, everything came out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Noah starts really well. God has saved me. I must thank him. Here we see why he had to have so many of the clean animals, because he's going to slaughter a whole bunch of them. And the Lord was pleased by this aroma. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and he pronounces this extraordinary blessing, a promise. Never again will I curse the ground because of man. Never again. Even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, even so, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. God responds very favourably to Noah's sacrifice. Now, it can't have been because Noah was perfect. It can't have been that here is this blameless, perfect man that God thinks, yes, this is my one. Because, chapter 8, verse 21, every inclination of the hearts of man is evil all the time. That includes Noah. Somehow, though, this sacrifice gives us hope for the future. It's as if God is saying, okay, let's, let's let this continue. Let's continue this search for the one who will save. God makes an extraordinary promise of stability. If you like, this is the basis of our modern scientific method. The world, God says, will be ordered and I will keep it ordered. I will keep the seasons turning and day becoming night. I will keep the world turning. Now, on the back of this extraordinary promise, we come to Genesis chapter 9. Now, Genesis 9 is a lot like Genesis 1 to 3. I mean, take, for example, Noah. Let's compare Noah to Adam. Uh, Both of them were alone in the world with their families. It was just them and that's it. A little bit lonely. You'd hope you get along well, because if you have a fight, there's no one else to go and talk to. Both of them were gardeners, as we'll find out soon enough. Both of their stories involve nakedness. And shame. And both of their stories end in blessing and cursing. We come to this world washed clean. And in the same way that God gave humanity his commands in Genesis 1 and 2, so he does again now. In fact, it's almost the same command. God resets, restarts. Let's go again. Chapter 9 and verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1 and 2. Multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. However, there is a change in the relationship. See, back in Genesis 1 and 2, the world was in harmony. 
Whereas now the world is under a curse. And so God has to kind of tweak, if you like, the relationship between humanity and the animals. Verse 2, the fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth, all the birds of the air, every creature that moves along the ground, upon all the fish. They are given into your hands. No longer is it this peaceful dominion. Now it is a rule in which animals fear and mankind eats. Verse 3, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Now as a side note, I think that's one of my favourite verses in the Bible. I love me a good steak, right? I take it before this, they were vegetarian. And now at this point, God says, actually, you know what? You can eat moo cow. Mm. <laughs> you can have burgers and steak and other delicious things. But notice though, even God gives the animals into the hands of humanity. God still reserves the right to life. His is the authority. It is uh, delegated to humanity, but it still belongs to God. So he says in verse 4, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Later on we'll learn that the, the Old Testament, the life of the animal was considered to be in the blood. You can eat it, but its life is mine, says God. And in the same way of humanity, mankind's life, every man, every woman, every child, their lives are mine too. Verse 5, for your lifeblood, God says, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For he is in the image of God. For in the image of God has God made man. What a strange sentence. That's written very awkwardly. God made us in his image. And for our life, for your life, for every human's life, God will demand an accounting. Now again, this is a concession. Up until now, God has reserved the right to take human life. We saw that with Cain. When Cain was worried, people are going to kill me. God said, well, actually, the lives of humanity are in my hands and I alone reserve the right to take. Now this is delegated to mankind. If someone murders, it is right for their life to be taken. Now, in principle, at least, we have support for some sort of capital punishment there. How that's brought about and, and the mechanisms and the circumstances of doing that uh, are a question that need to be, uh, to be addressed. But God delegates to humanity the right to take another man's life in certain circumstances. However, notice the point. The point is this. For every life that is taken, an account must be given before God. Every life that is taken... An account must be given before God, for man was made in God's image. Now that is a foundational truth for so many areas of our modern ethics. That every life is precious to God. That every life that is taken must be accounted for. Now this has implications in all sorts of areas. Uh, euthanasia, abortion... Um, are probably the, the two kind of end-of-life ones. But how we treat refugees comes under this, I think, certainly capital punishment. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had the, the, the big media coverage about the Bali Nine and the, the place of capital punishment in their situation. 
We need to remember that every life is precious to God. That is our starting point in all of these discussions. Now, those are very big topics, and I mean, we may well have opportunity to talk about them some other point in time, but I wanted to emphasise the importance of these verses for all of humanity in understanding that every life is precious. As for you, God says, get on with it. Be fruitful. Increase in number. Multiply and increase upon it. Once again, let's start. And God finally establishes his covenant with Noah. I don't know if you noticed, back in chapter 6 and verse 18, God says, I'm going to make my covenant with you, Noah. I will establish my covenant with you and we finally get to that covenant. God is going to spell out what it is. So, verse 8, God said to Noah and to his sons, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, everything that came out. I establish my covenant and here it is. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, I'm making a covenant between me and you and every living creature, a covenant for all generations. And this is the sign of the covenant. Verse 13, I've set my rainbow in the clouds. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. There's God's promise. Never again will I flood the earth. Now understand the context. Remember why God flooded the earth. Because of the wickedness of mankind. And presumably if that wickedness continues well, maybe there will be temptations to flood again. See, who is the rainbow for? Who's the rainbow a reminder for? Yeah, I always used to think it was for us. I used to think that when the rainbow came out, I'd look at it and go, oh, that's nice, God's not going to wipe us out. But no. The rainbow is for God. Verse 14, whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears, I will remember my covenant between me and you. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. Why does God need a reminder? I mean, he, he rules the universe moment by moment. He holds stars and galaxies and ants and microbes and Everything is in his hands under his control, moment by moment. Why does God need a reminder not to flood the earth again? I deal with the, uh, the evening church guys a fair bit, and, uh, and, and recently a couple of them have taken to asking me to remind them when they're supposed to do things. It's a, it's a little bit weird. I mean, well, don't you have a diary, can't you? They're absent-minded, right? They don't think of these. That's not why God needs a reminder. It's not because he's absent-minded. And we'll forget. God needs a reminder because of chapter 8 and verse 21. God needs a reminder because every inclination of the heart of humanity is evil from childhood. As sin increases on the world, God will again see the same circumstances that caused him to wipe it out last time. He needs a reminder to say, okay, I promised I wouldn't. See, we have a new Eden, we have a new start, we have a new creation, but unfortunately it is followed by a new fall, if you like. Genesis 1 and 2 is followed by Genesis 3. Genesis 9, well, this is what happens next. 
Now notice the story at this point, as we get to 9.18, the story shifts. So far the focus has been Noah. Now the story shifts its focus to Noah's sons, which straight away tells us one thing, that Noah wasn't the promised one. The story has moved on from him. He's done his part. He's he's been a very passive saviour, to be honest. God said to him, Noah, I'm going to flood the earth. Okay, God. Noah, build an ark. Okay, God. Noah, put food on the ark. Okay, God. Noah, put animals in the ark. Okay, God. I'm going to shut you in. All right, now come out, Noah. Okay, God. Been very passive. He's just done what he's told. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. But now we come to a story where we see Noah doing what he wants to do instead of listening to God. And much like Genesis 3, God is absent. I never really noticed this before. I went and read read Genesis 1 to 3 again in preparation for this sermon. In Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account, God is everywhere. God said, God did, God approached, God moved, God walked, God, God, God. And then Genesis 3 begins with no sign of God. It's like he's finally left them to their own devices and the first thing they do is stuff up. Well, the story of Noah has been the same. God, 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 all along. And now 9.18, they're left to their own devices. And this is what happens. The sons of Noah came out, chapter 9, verse 18. Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham, notice, was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Now, what does Noah do the first time that he sets out to do his own thing? Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. That's all right, okay. When he drank some of his wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Good on you, mate. The first thing you're going to do of your own accord, off the bat, God's gone. Hey, grapes. Hey, let's have some fun. And Now, what's wrong with what he did? I mean, if we put it in our modern language, he had a few drinks at home and then had a snooze. I mean, what's wrong with that? Now, I take it that we're desensitised to nakedness. I mean, it's everywhere. It saturates the things that... I mean, we have lingerie football, for crying out loud, right? I mean, we just we live in this world that is just saturated with nakedness to the point where it no longer really means anything to us. However... Here, nakedness is shameful. You remember Adam and Eve? What was the first thing that happened after they realised they were naked? They felt ashamed and they covered up. To be naked is to be exposed in a shameful way and Noah's drunkenness results in that. But even worse are the consequences for his son. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, just in case you forgot, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside, <laughs> come look at that, he's passed out. He's like, <laughs> and they go, what are you doing? That's not something to laugh about. This is serious. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it across their shoulders. They walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way that they would not see their father's nakedness. They did the right thing. Ham didn't. And the consequences are immediate and severe. When Noah awoke from his wine, found out what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Why did Noah curse Canaan? Ham was the one 
who came in and looked at him and went and told the others. Why did Noah curse Canaan? Why are we at such pains to be told that Ham is the father of Canaan and Canaan is the one who is cursed? I think in the same way that Genesis 9 has a lot of echoes towards Genesis 1 to 3, Genesis, well, the story of Noah has a lot of echoes into the future of Israel as well. The clean and the unclean animals, for example. The sacrifice that Noah does. And here we are told very explicitly, Canaan, these are the people from whom the other people... Do you remember Canaan? Does that word sound familiar? Who else was called Canaan later in the Bible? Anyone know? They became a nation, a group of people. And who were they? The Canaanites, yeah, thanks. The Canaanites, who were the people in the promised land that Israel had to slaughter because of their idolatry and their sexual immorality and their depravity. In one way, this curse became true and it was a curse because of the truth. Ham dishonoured his father and so Ham's son was cursed. Sin has had its day. Wickedness of humanity continues. We haven't fixed everything. It's still red. No one has sculled the cup. Thank you, Joe. But where there's cursing, there is also blessing. And so Noah continues this quest. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. And Noah lived a while and Noah died. The search continues. It wasn't Noah. In fact, it doesn't seem like it was any of his sons either. A father gets drunk, a son takes advantage, a grandson is cursed because of it. Shem is blessed. And the story will continue in the quest for the Saviour through his line. See, evil continues. The hearts haven't been fixed. They are still wicked. History continues. And that's the story of Noah. Now let me draw out a couple of implications. Firstly, from this chapter, and then from the story of Noah as a package. I want to say three things about this chapter. Firstly, notice Noah. Notice Noah. Noah is held up for us in the New Testament as this paragon of faith. He's presented as one of the examples of faith to follow. In fact, he's described, if you remember, as a righteous man, a blameless man. He was one of God's people, and yet he was a sinner. Now take comfort in that. To be one of God's people doesn't mean to be perfect. To come in the church, you don't have to be someone who's got it all sorted, who never does anything wrong to anyone, who never has done anything wrong to anyone, who's never done anything wrong to God. You don't have to be that person. Noah's faith was counted to him as righteousness. His ability to entrust himself to God was his righteousness. That is God's people. Who you are, what your past is, the things that you've done, the places that you've been. It is your faith in God, your trust in his ability to deliver you that will make you his. Secondly, let's talk very briefly about alcohol. 
Now, in this passage, strangely, Noah isn't condemned for what he does. God doesn't kind of pop out and say, Oh, Noah, that's wrong, you shouldn't get drunk. Now, the rest of the Bible makes it quite clear. God's people are to be self-controlled, disciplined people. And to be drunk is the opposite of that. Right, so don't hear me say getting drunk is right or rightful or righteous. But even in this story, notice the consequences of Noah's drunkenness. He got drunk. His nakedness was abused such that he ended up cursing his own grandson. What a horrible situation to occur. Our two girls, uh, Sophia and Eleanor, are the only grandchildren on both sides of the family. So both my parents and Edwina's parents only have two grandkids, Sophia and Eleanor, and they're rightfully spoiled. I mean, fair enough, right? They're the only ones. They get all the presents. Uh, Life seems to be about them. They love their granddaughters. I can't imagine Dad cursing Sophia. And yet such was the events brought about by Noah's drunkenness. Now, I don't want to be a wazzer. I'm not going to tell you not to drink alcohol. All things are good in moderation. But if you know that having one drink will inevitably result in one drink too many, then don't have the one. And if you know other people for whom one drink will lead to one drink too many, then help them not to have that one drink. Don't put temptation in the way, whether it's the places that you go, the things that you drink at mealtimes, the care for one another. And if you are one of those people for whom one drink perhaps means one drink too many, then would you be open about it with others? We, we want to look after you and care for you, and we can't if we don't know. Now, don't we? It's not, hey, oh, he's an alcoholic, she's an alcoholic, yeah, let's have. It's not about that, right? It's not about you just screaming it out, shouting it out to everyone so everyone knows what you deal with. And, but at least the people around you who want to help you and care for you. All right, thirdly, quickly, nakedness. As I said, I think we've been desensitised. And uh, in some ways it's almost impossible to avoid the sexualization of our society I mean, you, unless you drive with your eyes closed and I don't recommend you do that. Um, but do you work hard to fill your mind with things that are holy and pure? It, 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 is, it is a battle to be fought, right? With all of that entails, it is hard. It requires discipline. It is work. It's not just something that will happen. There's chapter 9. Let me draw three implications from the story of Noah to wrap this extraordinary tale up. Firstly, about God. You need to know these three things. God is just. He will punish the wicked. God is fair. He will punish the wicked. The judgment day is coming. The proof is that it's already happened once before in the day of Noah. But secondly, you need to know that God is merciful. He will save his people. And thirdly, you need to know that God is purposeful. History is going to work itself out his way. There is nothing that will stop him from accomplishing his purposes. Judgment will come. Now secondly, what about this serpent crusher, this so-called saviour, the one we were looking for from chapter 3 verse 15? Well, it clearly wasn't Noah. He didn't fix the heart problem. He hasn't offered anything for us. He didn't undo the curse. In fact, it wasn't Noah. It wasn't his son Shem. It wasn't Shem's famous son 
Abraham, it wasn't Jacob or Isaac or Moses, it wasn't David, it wasn't Solomon, it wasn't any of the great heroes of the Old Testament. It was the one who so confidently spoke of that judgment day to come that we read in Matthew 24. The one who could say, judgment is coming. I know it's coming because my father is bringing it. The one whose life and whose death and whose resurrection brings salvation, who fixes the heart problem, whose death brings forgiveness for past sin. Notice in passing, not even Jesus knows when that day will be. In that passage he says, the son doesn't know, the father knows. So be wary of people who tell you that they know when judgment day is coming. It's very popular. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of fiction written about it, but then there there are some so-called Christian groups who are really concerned for working out when this day of judgment is going to be. Jesus said he didn't know. How are you going to know? Just a little warning. Thirdly, what about us? We are faced with the most dangerous situation of our lives. Let me tell you about the motorbike. We're going to come back to it. It was a Sunday night after church. This was over in Argentina. So it would have been 9, 10 o'clock at night. We were going out for dinner afterwards to someone's house. Uh, 13, 14, I was something like that, I was a kid. And uh, so everyone took off and, and driving and, and sort of the, the older young adults all went. And I thought my mate Francis, who, who we kind of did sound stuff together, so we were mates, he was going on his motorbike and I thought, you beauty, I'm going to hop on the back of that and we're going to go. And uh, I mean, nothing's cooler, right, when you're 13 and jumping on the back of the bike with your, your older kind of buddy and off we went. There's no helmets or safety gear, whatever. And uh, so our city, there was a 40-kilometre speed limit everywhere in the city, wherever you went. And I'm sure we were doing at least 70 or 80. I mean, when, when you're a young adult and you've got this kid on the back who you're trying to impress, of course, you're just like, you're hooning along. And we went and did some manies up and down the main street just to show off a bit because we're being cool. And just blasting through town. And uh, we finally went and we, we arrived at this place. And I'm just like, yeah, that was so cool. Oh, it's amazing. And his sister goes, oh, how did you get here? She, she knew I was you know, a kid, couldn't drive. Oh, I came with Francis on the bike. It was so cool. We were going so fast. It was amazing. With Francis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother? Yeah, yeah. You know he's practically blind, right? (laughs) So Francis has this condition, which I've since met someone else who's got it, where basically there's this cone directly in front of your vision where you can see nothing. You can only see out of the periphery. And here we were. (laughs) This is so great. It was the most dangerous situation I've ever been in. Now, I didn't know the danger that faced me. When you're in danger, your whole life, remember, focuses in upon the next decision to make. If I had known, everything would have been about how do I get off? Can I reach over and pull the brake? Can I just say, hey, let's stop, I'm off, I'll walk. Noah, this story has warned us. You now know the danger you face. You now know that the judgment day is coming. You now know that there is salvation to be found only in one, 
Jesus? Are you prepared to do what it takes to find life in him? Will you cut your arm off, so to speak? Now, for some of us, to give our lives to Jesus may mean extraordinary change, families that will disown us, a lifestyle that needs to be given up. It will come at great cost. But in the moment of danger, it is worth it. Do we live knowing that he's on his way? Knowing the urgency in every one of our lives, have you put your trust in Jesus? And knowing the urgency for the lives of those around us. Have you told them of the boulder that's coming? And have you told them of the salvation that is found in Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this story of Noah, these events that are recorded for us. Thank you for the stark warning that they are. As you destroyed the world once before, so you will bring judgment upon the wicked again. Help us to believe you. Change our hearts. Remove our pride and our arrogance that thinks that we are capable on our own. Help us to see that in the face of this danger, we need a saviour. And so may we put our trust in Jesus. Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't yet done that, we ask please that you would open eyes, open minds, change hearts, that they may know Jesus and his death and resurrection. It may be costly. Father, give them the boldness to accept that cost. Father, for those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus, give us the urgency of knowing that this judgment is coming, that we would make sure we are right with you and that we would be bold in proclaiming that news to those around us. Amen. We're going to sing again.